0: Greetings again, everyone. A few things I want to comment on before the sermon today. First of all, some prayer requests. There are two people that I know of in the last very few days that have suffered uh, heart attacks, who have had to had surgery. I don't know about Mr. Austin Newell, the uh, latest situation. Do you? Went home, Went home. all right. Good, terrific. I know that he'd had a heart attack and was in, I think, uh, intensive care, is what I'd heard. I wanted to mention that, so that's good news. He's already gone home. Uh, Last night, my wife and I went down to the hospital and were with Mrs. Boyce. You know, they attend here quite frequently, and Sandy, uh, while Mr. Woodboyce was undergoing open-heart surgery, or I should say, well, yeah, that's open-heart, isn't it? Triple bypass uh, surgery, and we were there with them when both of the doctors who had been on the case were coming out, and he had been... uh, Delayed for some reason and then much longer on the operating table than they had thought But everything was very fine. He was stable at the time that we went home around nine o'clock or so And that was very good news. They were not going to be able to see him until about noon today But uh, they've been told that the operation was quite successful That's where they actually take some of your own veins out of your thigh. I think and then of course patch them in And at the time that we got there, they would just been told that he was on the pump. So actually, his blood was being circulated through his body by a mechanical or an artificial device rather than by his own heart. And by the time we left, of course, his own heart was pumping away again and the sutures were all in place and everything was as it should be. So please remember not only Mr. Boyce, who was lying there in the hospital, hopefully a little bit awake this morning, but also Mrs. Boyce and Sandy and the grandchildren and that family. There may be some others that I don't know about that are sick. I don't have any announcements here to tell you about that may need your prayers, but I did not want to pass that on to you. Mr. Ronald Dart is over in Albuquerque, New Mexico today for a special church visit. I see that I'm already starting to get 1987 scheduled pretty heavy. Uh, looks like I'm going to begin doing some campaigns on the basis of about at least uh, one a month, if not two a month for the bulk of 1987, which is part of our plan, together with going down to Jamaica and then other uh, campaigns that we'll be having in cities all over this country. In the last few days, I've been able to read some mail from England and also some letters from the Philippines that were very, very inspiring. It's interesting to me to begin reading again in that inimitable British scrawl, the way those people write in England. Uh, very ecstatic excited comments about hearing me like a long-lost friend after all these years where were you and I found you again kind of a thing because we're on Radio Caroline and now we're being heard all across Northwestern Europe as far as into Finland and a great deal of the British Isles so very very shortly now perhaps in December or the very latest in January I'm going to have to begin going back on radio and hopefully as we can as our budget permits And that's going to be a a very serious question as to whether and as to how far our budget will permit. We are going to try to arrange some radio stations, even if they are not the very greatest ones, like a WRBA in Richmond, Virginia, or WAI San Antonio, with the big 50,000 watt clear channel stations, maybe here and there. Even an FM station in a local area where we have a local church and we have local backup, where at least those people can hear the program and can be part of what is going on and at least it will be partially a maintenance factor for the people already on our mailing list as you may well know the big audiences are on television they are not on radio but at certain times on radio like the prime drive times as they are called of go to work in the morning and go home in the evening times from about six thirty till eight or eight thirty in the morning and from about four thirty till about six thirty or seven in the evening prior to prime time television is a good time to be on radio or even late at night there's still a surprising number of American people in their automobiles and trucks and buses out there on the road who listen to FM stations and continually I'm still meeting people who say well I used to hear you at 6 a.m. or I heard you at 1130 p.m. or at 2 a.m. And I used to drive a truck and I used to go across the country and I could hardly avoid hearing you on the airwaves somewhere some of them would say I heard you about three or four or five times in the same night and we used to be on, of course, 300 radio stations and 165 television outlets. I found it fascinating that when for a week Good Morning America did a special on the fundamentalists in the United States and included the fundamentalists on religious television, that they did not even mention the parent organization or the program of which I was the moderator for about twenty-five and some odd years the world tomorrow and you know why they don't because even though the income of that organization is equal to that of jimmy swagger and even though the dollars that come into that organization they quoted jimmy swagger as having hundred and fifty million dollars income per year and those people like the uh... jim baker and tammy and uh... let's see the uh... Well, Swaggart is one, and Dr. Seuler is another one, and Oral Roberts is another one, Billy Graham. Then there are the lesser ones like Rex Humbard and some of the lesser-known ones like the fellow down in Florida, I think Richard DeHaan and different ones that are on big national television satellites and so on. Oh, yeah, the one that's running for president or about to, Pat Robertson. And he was on there briefly, and they interviewed Jim Baker with his big resort kind of a, they call him the Disney of uh, religion, And I didn't know this, but they have a fabulous place over somewhere in the Carolinas, I think. I don't know what state it's in, with big hotels and amusement parks and merry-go-rounds and just a carnival environment, and they get people to donate a lot of money, and they can spend a certain amount of their time there free for a year. And they had pictures of all that, and it was just mind-boggling at some of the uh, institutions and uh, monuments that some of these people have built. But I found it fascinating that the parent organization for all of its income is actually just small potato, just tiny, just unnoticed by the major networks when they decide to do any kind of an interview about the big people in television evangelism. They're just unknown. And I find that is a little bit uh, both humorous and a little bit disconcerting. It shows the enormity of the amount of money that is going to defray all sorts of other expenditures rather than going in the media to do the work of God. By our charter, we are committed in the Church of God International to expend 50% of the monies which come in to the work in media. That means every aspect of the outreach program, be it literature, be it radio or television, in preaching the gospel and in providing religious materials, booklets, the magazines, the newspaper, and all those uh, parts of either electronic or printed media. If we continue with that, we literally could become at some point in time 10 percent the size of the Worldwide Church of God in terms of annual income. Say 15 million per year, and we would be spending as much or more than they are spending and would be making a far bigger impact in radio and television than they are because we would be spending seven and a half or eight million of that amount of money on television and radio rather than building monuments and paying enormous salaries and uh, and all the other things i could talk about which i will not do i had an interesting experience recently i was able to go hunting up in colorado and Charlie was up there and some other folks were in camp, Guy Carnes, Benny Sharp, uh, Bill Porter came up and joined us for a little while. We finally had six fellows in camp and we got into some areas up there where you can see about 60 or 80 miles in all directions. You can see all the way to Utah and the Uintas in one direction, and see all the way to the Rockies above North Park in another direction. And you're out there hunting with huge big boulders and cliffs and mountains that uh, some of the boulders are as big as this building just about and it does make you feel like a gnat and someone made the concept in the vastness of that country that you feel like a gnat and I said no you feel like a germ on the gnat's hind leg Uh, because it is just overwhelming I mean there is just a a, a pervasive loneliness or a feeling of utter desolation and of the vastness of the country with virtually no other human beings in sight and with you and you know that if you just took off and walked and you can go twenty or thirty or forty miles out there and see virtually nothing, and it, it is a, a, an overpowering feeling that really puts you in your place, makes you realize how tiny you really are. When you go into the tent of the evening, and we were up around the uh, seven or eight thousand foot level, I suppose, and the stars come out at night and they're so bright, looks like you can touch them, and I would get my ten power binoculars and look at Venus and point them out to people, they'd come out of the tent, you can see a lot of the moons and the Venusian atmosphere and so on, And it's just absolutely awesome to see those huge, big planets and the stars up there, and it makes you feel so tiny. Well, you know, you feel like you are alone, and yet no matter where you go, you realize the foot of man has trod where you are right now walking in this desolate, lonesome area. We went down along a little creek that winds along for, for uh, miles there called Vermilion Creek and found a little spur of a jeep road, and it just... Finally came to nothing where a big wash was and stopped, and there were a huge cliffs soaring up above us and a big valley that opened up before us that I'd really never been in before. And on the way back out, I just thought, I knew that where Vermilion Canyon was, there's a very narrow canyon that you can almost touch both sides of it. It soars up for about 80 or 100 feet on both sides, and we've taken people on walks through there, and all along on both sides are Indian petroglyphs that date back to what is called the, I forget, I think it's not the Fremont culture, but anyway, it dates way back to long before Columbus discovered America, of the ancient forerunners of the Utes and the Cheyenne and some of those people who lived in that part of Colorado and uh, extreme eastern Utah. And here are family figures holding hands and mountain sheep and obviously elk with the various horns coming out and uh, almost looks like Egyptian scarabs or a kind of a beetle with legs and all sorts of circles and solar signs like minor little suns and so on and there is one I've taken pictures of him over the years big medicine man or a shaman with a mask on and a very finely decorated breastplate with all sorts of beads and everything and a fringed skirt and I have pictures of him he has a headdress some of them are pictures wearing headdresses with various horns on well here we were in an area that i would never been before and on the way out, I thought, well, wait a minute, I'm going to take a look at that wall. It just looked like it was so sheer and so smooth, we were commenting on the stone. looked like it had been mixed in Mom's blender and laid down in the finest of sandstone of just these rosy orange kind of hues, almost like you would see in some cutaway views of the Grand Canyon, where you will see great strata that are just absolutely uniform and so uh, smoothly mixed that they can be far higher than the ceiling in this room and with absolutely no, no cracks in them or anything, just a solid big piece of sandstone. So I got my binoculars, though I wasn't too much further than from here to the front door, and looked, and just leaping into my sight were all these faint little figures. So we stopped and we got out and uh, looked at them, and sure enough, we discovered some petroglyphs that I had never seen before, and we got to exclaiming over them and discovering another one here, another one there, and looking and looking. It gives you a weird feeling you pick up little flakes here and there where you're hunting you'll see the remains of an old Indian campfire which we found in one area and little chips of arrowheads one time years ago Jim Thornhill and Brent Curtis discovered in the ashes of an old fire they began to dig around where obviously Indians generations before had camped and had made arrowheads and there were flakes all about on a great big promontory overlooking a valley and they dug down into the ashes and they found the discarded headdress but actually had buffalo horn on it and a portion of the skull and just a little bit of that horn still remain and some of the hide that was worn by an Indian witch doctor as a headdress and they just sort of reverently put it right back where it was and covered it up again and just left it there they were not going to take that away but it kinda trickles the back of your scalp because you're looking around you're realizing these people were wandering around in here who if they found me here and time machine could put me back at that time they might eat me You know, they might do some horrible things to me. And you begin to realize that you're not the first person to walk these desolate areas, but you're in an area that has been people by human beings. You begin to realize, here I am in my nice warm boots with felt liners, I got long johns, I got 100% wool pants on, German army pants with pockets all over them that I bought, a wool, wool wool-rich shirt, a nice big ski parka, a heavy, you know, cap, I got a rifle on my shoulder, all sorts of ammunition, I got a knife, we got all kinds of survival gear, we got a candy bar and a couple of granola bars, maybe an apple, and in the truck we've even got a six pack of beer, you know, so there we are with all sorts of survival equipment. We begin to realize I'm out there, you know, we're taking down camp and here comes the snow. And a big storm comes blowing in, and we're taking down camp on the run with peppercorn snow coming down the back of our neck and obscuring everything. You're going to leave anything lying out there very long, like a hammer or a shovel, it's going to be covered up. And it's just a mess, and it's icy cold, and the temperature's dropping 10 degrees every hour. And you begin to realize how would I feel if I were one of those Indians? And there is no such thing as insulated clothing. And I'm out here wearing nothing but deer skins and huddling around in some robe that I can make with my own hands that my squaw can out of rabbits or antelope or deer or whatever and trying to protect myself as best I can. And about the way these people used to live. It is almost as if unseen eyes are watching you. You know the feeling? You ever go to a place in an old cave and begin to spelunk around investigate it and hear a noise and look around and wonder if somebody is there? Well, it gives you that feeling because you realize people used to be there. This seems to be unrelated, but it's not. The other day I was watching one of these shows where a lady was telling about a horrible situation that occurred where her boyfriend, uh, well, no, her husband had begun to uh, develop some sort of an association with a girlfriend and uh, was breaking up their marriage and at the last moment brought this girl into her home in front of her own children to introduce this girl to her and to the kids and he was in the process of divorcing her and was gonna split up this home but he had all this lovey-dovey thing let's all love one another no hard feelings and we're gonna be friends and all this and this other lady that is sitting there hearing this story just sitting there like this and that made me think of what I want to talk about today And what i want to talk about today is there are hidden unseen eyes watching you all the time there really are there may be occupants of chairs in this room that you cannot see i want to turn to hebrews the second chapter for a moment we begin speaking of man where it says in verse six one in a certain place testified saying what is man that thou art mindful of him. And boy, does it ever make you feel that way up in Colorado on a crystal clear evening looking at the stars. We in this earth of ours are but one tiny speck which is almost the same thing as one grain of sand in all the seashores of the earth in comparison with the number of stars and planets in the universe. And yet on this earth, which is about five-sixths water, are the continents, and on the continents, of course, are all of these various political entities we call nations, and in these great nations, such as the United States, from one great sea to another one, is a big, big state called Texas that takes you a full day of 9 to 11 hours just to drive across at a speed of 70 and 75 miles an hour if you look out and don't get caught. And here in the state of Texas is the county called Smith that would probably kill most of us to try to walk across. And in that county is a little tiny town, a small town as American cities go, called Tyler. And somewhere near or in the environs of Tyler is a house that you would think is a big house where you live. And then in that house is a little bitty speck of human flesh and blood that is you. And we think that we are big, and we think that we are relative, and that we are important, that we mean something, but actually we are so tiny. We literally are about like that germ on the back leg of a a gnat in comparison to what is really going on and what is important. One in a certain place said, What is man that God would pay any attention to him? Or the son of man that God would notice him or visit him or be concerned about him? You made him a little lower than the angels. Now there are orders of life in the universe. There is the macrocosm of the universe itself and the great beings that inhabit space. And there is the microcosm of this earth and its ecosphere and the tiniest little creatures did you know for example that under a microscope you could pluck one of your eyebrows I don't want to frighten anyone or make your skin crawl but this is actually an absolute fact and that because of the fact that our bodies are host to innumerable billions of bacteria of all types, hopefully 99% of them are helpful, in our intestinal tract, inside of our bloodstream, in our ears, inside of our pores, on our scalp and our hair, inside our nose, in our mouth, underneath our fingernails, all over our bodies. And as we secrete the various oils and so on that are on our bodies, little yeast spores floating freely in the air attach themselves to our bodies and so on every little tiny speck of lint that would be brushed up from the floor on which you walk has bacteria on it. As we know somebody comes in a room and sneezes violently or coughs those bacteria by the millions can be floating about and eventually you can get one or two of them and they begin to explode as they get into the mucous membranes of the nose and the throat and pretty soon you got a flu or a cold and that's the way they're transported about. So I won't belabor that but you can actually pluck an eyebrow, put it on a little plate get a powerful 1,000 times telescope and look at it very carefully and right at the little kind of uh, 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 gelatin like substance right where the root comes out you will see a funny looking little creature there is a particular little type of of critter that loves to get inside the root of every human eyebrow And and they don't pluck all your eyebrows out to get rid of them because they're, they're, they're harmless, they don't bother you. I'm just making a point that I've actually seen this demonstrated and I've actually seen a zoom, you know, 10,000 times magnification of these creatures that are there, little creatures. That is the microcosm. When you stop to think about a lifeless landscape, you get out where we were in Colorado, you kneel in the dirt and you look and pretty soon here comes an ant. Well on that ant and inside that ant are all kinds of bacteria. And you look at these rocks, they look so lifeless, but you look at them twice, and here are all sorts of beautiful reddish-colored and greenish-colored lichens and mosses. And those are living, plant and animal, in symbiotic relationship, which is secreting an acid which is gradually breaking down the rock upon which the plant is feeding, which in turn provides food for the animal. So certain lichens are actually a plant-animal kingdom united together in symbiotic relationship to support each other. And there is life. Do you know that every single drop of seawater in the ocean contains more than 10,000 diatoms, which are the tiniest of all plants, which have no leaves but are a single-celled little plant which actually produces on the surface of the ocean oxygen for man to breathe. So the microcosm God created, God is aware of the microcosm you as a chemist in a laboratory could take any sample of anything you want to piece of paper take your finger just rub it on a piece of glass put it under a microscope you'd be dumbfounded of what is there things kind of wiggling and crawling you can take a sample of something out of your ear your nose your mouth just touch a of your tongue put it on there and see all sorts of interesting things going on just like a lot of times you've seen in some of these interesting programs on television they will actually put a drop of seawater or you will see plankton which are food for the greatest of all animals mammals the blue whales and you will see these strange shapes like every kind of size and shape a shape of little shrimp Swimming and struggling along in seawater, and they're so tiny that it takes billions of them to color the water so you can actually see them in phosphorescence as the prow of a big ship is plowing along in the very cold waters of the Antarctic or somewhere like that, and you can see just billions of these marine animals that seem to shine with the phosphorescence in the light like at night. I've seen them in other parts of the uh, Pacific Ocean. Why does God pay attention to a life like man? It is said to be, in the order of things, only a little lower than the angels. You crown him with glory and honor, and did set him over the works of your hands. What is there that you can know or that you can come to see or experience that man is not over, that man does not control? Just this morning, I was sitting watching, The uh, educational channel, I believe it was, and they were showing beluga whales being captured so that they could be brought to various uh, marine lands or not zoos, but in the big aquariums where people could watch them. Beluga, of course, is the white whale. They're very small as whales go, and yet even the juveniles that they were capturing weighed six or seven hundred pounds and it took about seven or eight or ten men with a big kind of a rubber cradle to try to get these creatures and their mammals and it told how they went about it and so on and how they transported them and how careful they were to try to bring them so that millions of human beings going through these places the aquariums and the places like in florida and out at marine land can see and marvel at and enjoy these white whales that look just like a sort of a larger porpoise with a little bump in their head and a little bit of a beak and they're such friendly-looking creatures, and it showed how friendly they are to man, that they adapt very quickly to man, and how friendly they are to each other, and so on. I remember when I was up in Kodiak, Alaska, many, many years ago, hunting for Kodiak bear. And we were at Dead Man's Bay, and there was an inlet there, which is saltwater, tidal uh, rise and fall, and you could see the clams squirting away when the tides... And I would be up on a little bit of a precipice there, looking for bear. And here would come a whole pod, as they're called, or a school, of beluga whales. And you could hear them squeaking, and you can hear their voice go out with a rush and see what they say spouting is really just the steam from their warm lungs and a very cold air when they come up for a breath and then go back down. And they're such beautiful, such friendly creatures. Here is man who is able to actually control huge whales. Some of you have been to Disney World, Sea World, Marine Land. And you've seen little men, my size, maybe larger, jumping on the back of a gargantuan killer whale that is so big that he would be, oh, I I can't describe it. I mean, he just barely fit in this room, just a gigantic black and white, look like they're dressed in a tuxedo. And they are the killer whale that actually attacks other whales, like a great blue or a finback or humpback or a right whale or some other whale like that, and just rip them to bits and feed on other whales. So they can be just as vicious as any mammal or shark swimming in the ocean in a pod of them attacking a whale to feed and yet can be completely domesticated and a little slip of a girl can go out there and ride on their back and just at signals from her that thing will plunge under the water with her hanging on like a harness and come leaping way out of the water and fall back in with someone riding on that whale. And they have a thing, where is that where I saw it now, that amateurs like you and I can go and visit, jump in a big tank with these big dolphins, they tell you where to touch them and where not to touch them, and what signals to give them, and two of them will swim along together, and you can be swimming along, and you can reach out and grab them by the dorsal fin, and the minute you do and just hang on, they come about halfway out of the water and just give you a water ski ride. And just at real speed, just take you all around this big tank, and there you are just having a ball. And these two big animals are just carrying you around at real fast speeds. It's unbelievable what man can actually control. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him. He left nothing that is not put under him. What has man been able to accomplish? It would take me hours, and I don't don't need to uh, get into that, To delve into the area of science and technology, we know now that computers can carry enough data on a little chip the size of your little finger, which in World War II would have filled this entire room or two stories of rooms like it with great big 11, I mean, uh, you know, eight and a half by 11 sheets in file cabinets. And there are so many permutations and so many billions of little uh, bits and pieces of data that can now be contained in a little tiny microchip that it just absolutely blows your mind. I have a little personal computer at home that is a 30 megabyte and I could contain approximately seven full books the size of the Bible in that one computer just on that one little solid disk that I have there and store every bit of it in that computer. It just blows your mind that that is possible. We know the footprints of man are on the moon even though we've had one disaster with regard to the space shuttle we became practically blasé about several space shuttle launches and successful returns and landings every single year man has brought back pictures from the close-up landings on mars venus saturn jupiter mercury and are actually looking on out into space with some of the probes that have been launched at the various places whether out on the west coast or down at cape kennedy and are monitored carefully by Caltech and the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena. Man now begins to dream of a space laboratory, of growing vegetables and farming his own food in space, of taking a shuttle and taking parts and bits and pieces. They're practicing underwater to do that, to bolt them together, because if they can lift a Skylab or some kind of an orbiting laboratory out there and put it together, then men can actually commute back and forth, use that as a launching pad from which to explore further out into space, can go clear outside of this Earth's immediate uh, system around the sun, or our solar system, they hope someday, and to get on out into outer space. Would man be able to accomplish that in another 10 or 20 or 30 years? The answer is probably yes, because the Bible says we see now that not, not yet all things are put under him, but we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels. Man, I stress, is a rank of living creature in this microcosm that is only a little lower than another form of life called angelic life, made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. A little later on it says in verse 14 for as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood he himself also likewise took part of the same that through death he might destroy or thwart or counterwork, as the word really means him that had the power of death that is the devil and deliver them who through fear of death And that is so true. You could preach a sermon on that so quickly about pagan religions and about the Catholic religion and so many people's religions that everything that motivates them is fear of death, the blackness of the unknown, and consequently the strange doctrines they come up with. Deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. You have never seen an angel that you know of, but many men in the past have. I was attacked by an angel, but it was a fallen angel. It was not a good angel, and it was a horrifying, frightening experience. So in the obverse, or let's say in a very left-handed way, I have actually experienced in my own body, my own mind, living proof of a spirit world because I have been seized through the back so that my whole body was held as rigid as your ironing board. My tongue was unable to even pronounce a word. I was absolutely just rigid as a board, knew with a part of my mind what it was, frightened me out of my wits, and with my mind began to pronounce the name of Jesus Christ. Immediately this thing let go of me. I was lying in my own bed in my own home in Pasadena, California. And when it did, I sat bolt upright in bed and said, in the name of Jesus Christ, you know, I rebuke you. And instantly I heard my deaf son David scream out in his bed. He couldn't hear. And my wife and I got out of bed and rushed into the boys' bedroom, knelt at the side of their bunk beds, and began praying at the top of our voice, the top of our lungs. And as we were praying, I lived in a little one-story home where there was only a little narrow crawl space, maybe a little cap could have got under if the little vent space that had a hole in the wire, but there was no room for anything else under there. And it sounded exactly as if someone had a big broomstick and we are just going back and forth underneath my house on those risers as they call or the, the two by fours or two by sixes that held up the house. My hair was standing on in I was praying at the top of my lungs asking for God's protection. Never since have I experienced anything like that. That same night there were six interesting number people on the Ambassador College campus who were seized in the same fashion. Because on that campus there were some people who had begun to get interested in demons. And the fellow who was interested had driven on campus in a hearse. It was his private car. They would gather a couple, three students around and sit around and discuss demons at night. And so Bryce Clark, Dr. Benjamin Ray, Coesta Carter, myself, I think Norman Smith and one other I've forgotten who it was those names come back to me all that same night were absolutely seized in exactly the same fashion lying in their beds held rigid until through the name of Jesus Christ they could somehow get rid of this horrifying power that held them in a grip that so terrified me that in all the years since I have always prayed for God's righteous angels to be about me When I was flying the Falcon, when I fly the 421 or the aircraft that we use, I will once in a while look out at the wingtip and I will wonder, is there an angel riding out there? You know, they wouldn't need to lie down or be swimming through the air. They could be sitting there nonchalantly. I'm wondering if they're floating around the air, if they're inside the cockpit, if they're inside the cabin, if they're outside. But I hope that they are around somewhere, that they are there. And I will ask for their presence of God's righteous angels to protect us we ask that when we are flying or if we're away on a trip or for our children, because God's Word says a great deal about angels. If you look up angels, which I did again this morning just to rehearse some things, in the exhaustive uh, concordance, you're going to find hundreds of places in the Bible where the word angel or angels and messengers and so on are listed, and tremendous amount of information on them. I can give you just a little bit in this sermon today. But Christ was made and we are made as human beings only a little lower than the angels. So the angelic host happens to be a created rank of spirit individuals who are more powerful than men but nowhere near so powerful as God and apparently they are a spirit being who will have eternal life or immortal life as God so decrees, yet they cannot, as the Bible very clearly reveals, Mary. they cannot achieve salvation. Apparently those third of the angels that followed Satan the devil have been fully committed underneath the leadership of Satan the devil to their course and will not repent. And those two-thirds that have remained faithful to both of the other two great archangels mentioned in the Bible are going to remain absolutely faithful to Michael and Gabriel. In the twelfth chapter of the book of Revelation, we find reference to that in verse 3. There appeared another wonder in heaven. And behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his heads. And his tail, Christ refers to this over in Luke 10, 18, when he said, I saw Satan as lightning fall from heaven. His tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven. In Revelation 1 and verse 20, it says, The seven stars that thou sawest are the seven angels of the churches. So the Bible uses stars and stars. "...as a symbol of angels, a third part of the stars of heaven, not the stars that we see like Betelgeuse or the stars in the belt of Orion or the Pleiades or the Ursus Major and the rest of them, but angels apparently, spirit beings, and did cast them to the earth. And the dragon, which is symbolic or metaphorical language for Satan the devil, stood before the woman, a symbolism for the church, which was ready to be delivered. Mary is meant specifically." For to devour her child as soon as it was born. and Satan, the devil, and the person of Herod tried to kill Christ by wiping out all of the children in that part of Judea, two years of age and younger. And she brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up unto God into his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she hath a place prepared of God that they should feed her there for 1260 days or 1260 years. And there was war... In heaven. Now, today, man is very fascinated with Star Trek, Star Wars, Buck Rogers. We have been since the time I was a boy. Buck Rogers was very, very popular when I was a boy back in the 1930s, the early 40s. And long since, a lot of the things that uh, Buck Rogers was supposed to be able to do have been done by men who have actually gone to the moon and have orbited the earth and orbited the moon, gone there and come back safely. And uh, now today, I've never seen a lot of that type of thing, but science fiction, you can go in some of the bookstores and there will be a wall full. You can go right down here to B. Dalton bookstore and there'll be a huge big section with dozens and dozens of titles of all kinds of weird monsters, people going to this and that and the other planet way out in space. And men are just fascinated with the idea of creatures, and it's always what? It's always a struggle, it's always uh, evil and good, it's always uh, like, wasn't it The Force and uh, Darth Vader? I never did see those movies, but I think they were some of the great box office uh, uh, successes of all time. i forgotten the name it was, but there was E.T., and uh, there were these other movies about uh, creatures in outer space, and it's always, in these movies, they don't just have an atom bomb that wipes out Hiroshima or Nagasaki. They have got death rays and they have got things lasers and so on that destroy entire planets. I mean you see whole planets the size of the world just blowing up in a great red flash. So it's always great war. Well I guess God is going to give man at some point in time what he wants because there is going to be a great struggle. Now this of course already occurred but there's to come another one and it's interesting because it says There was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought. Now, how does an angel fight? I frankly do not know. But I have for many, many years come to understand that what I see in the universe, what I see in our solar system, what I even see on this earth in terms of the beauty of the rocks we see, which are 90-some-odd percent waterborne and water deposited, meaning not the metamorphic, but the sedimentary strata of this earth, And when we were up there, I was showing Charlie, we were picking up some little grass and they are little snails and here we're clear up around probably nine, nine thousand, five hundred feet above sea level in the Rockies on a western slope. And we're picking up fossils that were at at one time on a shallow seabed in salt water and there are billions of them. I could have shown him just whole mountains full of them. Matter of fact, there were a couple of mountains we walked on. They were just wherever you put your feet, just rocks by the, the tons. Of billions of these creatures now when I look at our moon and I see that there are huge craters that are more than a hundred miles across with a little sort of a, a little you know tip in the middle a little peak in the middle of you can see them and at certain points in time you can go even with a 10 power microscope or telescope at night and you can see them very very clearly but have you ever looked at lunar rocks well I have I've seen lunar rocks at JPL in Pasadena and I've seen them under a microscope as well as seeing them on display, just portions of these many, many rocks that the astronauts brought back from the surface of the moon. It is absolutely fascinating because not only are there giant craters that show huge asteroids that have smashed into the surface of the moon, and there are other moons like EO and some of the others around Venus or Mars which are lopsided, not even perfectly shaped through the principle of isostatic action which causes the roundness that will eventually occur to a sphere floating in space. But you will see that they are misshapen by huge asteroids that have smashed into them. On the moon, you will see craters and within the crater or even on the rim of it, smaller craters. Within those smaller craters, you'll see many, many other smaller craters. What is fascinating is That even in round, polished rocks, not any bigger than the size of, let's say, a number seven birdshot that you would shoot out of a shotgun shell. A little tiny lead pellet, that big around, of highly polished obsidian. Obsidian. How did it get that way? Well, it was superheated through a magmatic upthrust of some sort a volcanic action somewhere out in space on one of the planets and when it blew up and it's flying through space if you drop and that's the way they form chilled shot it will immediately get round what just blows your mind is that out there there are tiny little pellets moving at such blinding speed that under a microscope in this highly polished little glassy pellet there is a perfectly formed little crater unbelievable blows your mind seen it with my own eyes under a microscope just blows your mind and that's why when astronauts begin to travel they used to worry about going through certain asteroid belts well they are out there there's certain areas where there's floating debris and they always used to worry about that of encountering something like that where they would just be peppered just like somebody shot a shotgun at them with all kinds of floating debris that is going through space One of the problems of these people who are always fighting the Scopes Trial over and over and over again is, and I read it just very, very recently, it's a thing going on right now, different states are testing the challenges by creationists against some of the state educational system textbooks. And they will be doing it, no doubt, in Arkansas, as they've done, and again here in Texas. And the trouble with them is that many of these so-called creationists are trying to insist that the Earth is only 6,000 years old. And that is absolute nonsense. It can easily be four and one half billion years old, or even older, because it does say in Genesis one that the earth became without form and void, not that it was that way, or that it was created that way by God. Isaiah forty five eighteen says, He created it not tohu bohu, meaning empty, vain, void, waste, or in confusion or chaos but it became that way and the commentaries prove that but I think geology proves it as well so what do you see in this earth and what do you see out in the universe and what do you see on the surface of our own moon you see lifelessness out there you see wreckage you see mind boggling destruction now meteor craters one of the few big craters there's another one in Australia and there are probably some in the bottom of the sea that we don't even know about the one in Arizona is one mile across They have drilled, they have bored, they've had like oil drilling kinds of equipment, they have drilled in every direction they can and they have never found the heavy metallic meteoroid that smashed into Arizona so long ago, and no doubt caused about a ten point some odd earthquake over the entire North American continent when it did, because that crater is one mile across, and all over the landscape dotted around out there are jagged piles, if you've been there on the ground, and I've flown over it hundreds of times been on the ground, been down in it of lava, Well, they're not lava really, but just rock that was smashed off of the meteoroid probably and from the surrounding landscape and went up in the air and just lit like you would take a great big marble, let's say, or a steel ball bearing. And if your mom is cooking pudding on the stove and you take it and just throw it in there. And it's about, you know, set and almost hard, what will it do? Well, it'll the ball bearing go right to the bottom of the pan, leave a nice big hole, and splatter pudding all over the place. Well, that's exactly what happened when that big asteroid fell into the Arizona landscape so many centuries ago. How do angels fight? Apparently, they throw stars at one another, but I don't know. But when they did fight, it was Star Wars par excellence. And what we see out there is the result of that great battle. There was war in heaven, Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought and his angels, and prevailed not, because they were outnumbered two to one. But they would have, apparently they would have been superior in numbers, but they have apparently the same strength. Neither was their place found anymore in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. And a heard a loud voice saying, Now is come salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ, for the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God night and day. Verse 12 says, Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you that dwell in them, meaning the twenty-four elders, the great living creatures that we see in the fourth chapter of the book of Revelation, and all the, the holy angels, and God and Jesus Christ. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea, For the devil has come down unto you, having great wrath, and this is that time of a great battle in heaven, which is yet to occur, because he knows that he has but a short time. And when the dragon saw that he was cast unto the earth, he persecuted the woman which brought forth the man-child, which is the church. Now I want to go back to Psalm 91 and verse 11. There is a class of angels. There are many different classes, believe it or not. There are angels, angel-angels, let's say, which look like men. Psalm 91 and verse 11. This is the one that talks about God's protection and how we're to dwell in the secret place of the Almighty under the shadow of God's wings, that pestilence will not bother us, a thousand will fall at this side and ten thousand at the other. Notice in verse 11, There shall no evil befall thee, neither shall any plague come nigh thy dwelling, for he shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee in all thy ways. They shall bear thee up in their hands, lest thou dash thy foot against a stone. This is exactly the scripture that Satan the devil quoted to Jesus when he said, Why don't you throw yourself down from the pinnacle of a temple? Because it says in the Bible that angels will, will bear you up. And that's when Christ said, You shall not tempt the eternal your God, because if you do something contrary to God's laws, whether you're driving your car contrary to God's laws, whether you're breaking some law, either innocently or deliberately, then God's angels just not involved. They're not with you at that moment. They're not going to prevent you from doing something that will hurt you. If you are calling upon God, if you are close to God, if you are a person in whom God's Holy Spirit is active, living, and flowing, if you are close to God in prayer, God gives you certain guarantees. Psalm 104. Turn over just a few pages to the 104th Psalm. He says here that he makes his angels spirits. I won't read all of this, but he says, beginning in verse 2, who cover yourself with light as with a garment, the great eternal God who is clothed with honor and majesty, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain, who lays the beams of his chambers in the waters, who walks the clouds, uh, makes the clouds, I'm sorry, his chariot, who walks upon the wings of the wind, and one occasion in one of the Psalms, I think the 80th, it says who rides on the cherubim, who makes his angels spirits, Spirits, his ministers, meaning angels again, not ministers standing here in the pulpit at all, but his ministers, his angels, a flaming fire who laid the foundations of the earth that it should not be removed forever. Angels are spirit beings of a completely different generate or a completely different rank than we human physical beings, but they look like men. Let's go to Genesis nineteen. There are many dozens of scriptures that I said, but this is one of the most instructive about it that proves the fact that angels look like men. In the 19th chapter of the book of Genesis is the occasion of the rescue of Lot. It says in verse 1, The Eternal, that's Y-H-V-H, the one who became Jesus Christ, appeared unto him in the plains of Mamre, as he, Abraham, or Abram, sat in the tent door of the heat of the day, and he lifted up his eyes and looked, and lo, three men Stood there in front of him. And when he saw them, he ran to meet them, and he understood that something was very, very strange and unusual about these three individuals he saw. He said, My Lord, if I have now found favor in thy sight, pass not away, I pray thee, from thy servant. Let a little water, I pray thee, be fetched and wash your feet. Interesting. Angels get their feet dirty when they walk along a dusty path, when they are manifesting themselves as a human being, dressed like a human being, looking like a human being. So he was treating them just like very honored human beings. I will fetch a morsel of bread, and comfort ye your heart, and that you shall pass on. For therefore are you come to your servant, and they said, So do, as you have said. So they washed their feet, and they were taken into the tent. And he told Sarah to make ready three measures of fine meal, knead it, and make cakes upon the hearth. And Abraham ran to the herd and fetched a calf tender and good, and gave it to a young man, and he hasted to dress it. And he took butter and milk and the calf which he had dressed and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree, and they did eat. And they said unto him, Where is Sarah, your wife? I won't read it all, but that's when Sarah laughed, and she was stricken in age. In verse 14, they said, The eternal, verse 13, said unto Abraham, Is anything too hard for the eternal? At the time appointed, I will return unto you according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah was laughing and saying, That's impossible because I'm old. The men rose up from thence, verse 16, looked towards Sodom, and Abraham went with them to take them out a little way and to say goodbye, probably over the rise of the last hill inside of his tent. And the Eternal said, Shall I hide from Abraham that thing which I do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I know him, that he will command his children and his household after him, and they shall keep the way of the Eternal to do justice and judgment that the Eternal may bring upon Abraham that which he has spoken of him. And the Eternal said, Because the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grievous, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the cry of it, which is coming to me, and if not, I will know. And the men turned their faces from thence and went toward Sodom, but Abraham stood yet before the Eternal. And Abraham drew near and said, Will you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? All right, how many went toward Sodom? We'll find that in a moment. And he stood yet before the eternal. So he knew one of the three, all of whom looked like men, was the very one who was manifesting himself apparently in the form of an angel who later on was to become Jesus Christ of Nazareth. For eventually there be 50, you know the story, then 10, then 5, and finally... The Eternal, it said in verse 33, went his way as soon as he had left communing with Abraham, and Abraham returned into his place. And there came two angels to Sodom at even, only two. Lot sat in the gate of Sodom, and Lot, seeing them, rose up to meet them, and he bowed himself with his face toward the ground, and he pressed upon them to stay. And notice in verse 3, they did eat unleavened bread, and they lay down, uh, no, before they lay down, verse 4, the men of Sodom encompassed the house round, both old and young, and all the people from every quarter, and called unto Lot and said, Where are the men which came into thee be this night? Bring them out unto us that we may know them. I won't elaborate. These were rotten, filthy, sodomites and homosexuals, absolute proof that the two individuals there were angels who looked like normal men. You can read the rest of the story And I should imagine those angels were given a very delightful responsibility because they were directly instrumental in destroying that rotten city. Now God did it perhaps by other angels and by almost like a nuclear blast that came down and set everything on fire all at once. And those two angels were practically dragging Sodom, I'm saying Lot and his wife and two daughters, out of Sodom and uh, of course we know that Lot's wife looked back and all of the rest of the story but it's interesting that these angels looked exactly like men i have a number of other scriptures i want to give you and no time to really do it i want to just give you a couple of them real quickly to look at a little later on read first chronicles 21 all the way through that chapter where god sent angels to actually destroy jerusalem and as they were destroying it, it shows an angel hovering over at that point of time apparently he was able to make himself so big he was as big as a city standing astride the city of Jerusalem with a drawn sword in his hand, at the sin of numbering Israel, which it said in verse 1 of that chapter, Satan the devil directly caused David to do, and David threw himself upon God's mercy rather than upon the hands of man. You can look also at Daniel 3 and the entire chapter from verse 23 to 28, where Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, better known to you as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the Babylonian names, were thrown into the fiery furnace, And the keepers, after some of them were absolutely killed by a blast of hot air, said, I look, and there are not three but four men in the fiery furnace, and one of them, it has a form like unto a son of the gods, meaning their pagan gods. So there was an angel walking around with them. I was going to give you the one of where the angel opened the prison in Acts 5.19 and let Peter and the others out, and other examples of how angels serve God's people. Many of you probably know the scripture in 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 10 concerning a woman and her hair because of the angels, talking about a woman who is a godly woman who is fulfilling exactly what God says she should concerning her place in life toward her husband, toward Almighty God, toward the church, toward her children and said she ought to have the sign of power, meaning that she is under the authority of her husband quote, because of the angels, end quote. Meaning, if that sign is not there, then the angels are not there. I want to turn to Hebrews, the twelfth chapter, right quickly. I've got to conclude this and bring it to a very quick conclusion because of running out of tape in one hour. And so I want to go right quickly to Hebrews, the twelfth chapter. Well, let's go to the thirteenth chapter instead, and I'll just go to this last portion of it. You, he says, contrasting the mount and the sound of the trumpet and the quaking of it, the giving of the law at Mount Sinai, the terrible sight that Moses said he exceedingly feared and quaked, verse 22 of Hebrews 12, it is 12, you are coming to the Mount Zion unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect." And to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant and of the blood of sprinkling, he speaks of better things than that of Abel. He talks then of the great promises, that the voice that once shook the earth is now promised, saying, yet once more I shake not earth only, but also heaven, in verse 26, and concludes that chapter by saying, whereby, verse 28, we receiving a kingdom that cannot be moved, showing all of the spiritual glories of that kingdom, let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. Let brotherly love continue. Be not forgetful to entertain strangers because of something that might possibly occur. Wouldn't it be awful if you were an inhospitable person, if you were not a person that really did love your enemy as well as friends and people and brethren within the church, And someone had some need, someone needed to have a place to stay, or some food, or some help of some sort or another, and you denied it to them, and it was a test from Almighty God, and it wasn't a human being you denied, but actually an angel? That's what Paul wrote when he said, Be not forgetful to entertain strangers, for thereby, referring back to Sarah, some have entertained angels unaware unaware of the fact that there were two spirit beings sitting there, eating their food, manifesting themselves as men. Almighty God shows that his angels are put there as helps, as servants, as messengers. There are dozens of scriptures, and I'm going to conclude, and maybe I can take it up and bring you a little more on it some other time, about all the cherubim, the seraphim, how many there are, the differences between them the other great creatures in heaven above, the twenty-four elders that sit about God's throne, and why it says that God rides upon the cherubim and what a cherub really looks like, because, believe it or not, they look like an ox. And that is exactly why the Israelites made that kind of a form when they said, These be the gods, O Israel, which led thee up out of the land of Egypt, because the great cherubim that guarded the way to the tree of life for one-sixth of all of human history until now was well known by the ancients every time some wandering person got close enough to the entry to the garden of eden which is where palestine is today that great carob came out like a roaring lion with a huge body of an ox and the wings of an eagle and the head of a man with flames shooting out of its mouth and a sword going every which way and just scared the daylights out of them which gave rise to a lot of fabled tradition that we see in ancient literature and ancient monuments today so believe it or not If I felt a little eerie up there in Colorado because of a bygone civilization that had left its pictographs on those walls and thought, maybe some eyes were watching me, it maybe pays us to realize not only does Almighty God and Jesus Christ of Nazareth his Son and those twenty-four elders and all of the great creatures in heaven above, but right here on this earth, walking about in the dust of this earth with us on a day-to-day basis, are unseen, invisible. Spiritual angels who see everything we do. I hope what we do is something that doesn't make them sit there like the woman I saw on the program and just shake her head.